I just spoke to the authors of What I Wish I Knew, Surviving and Thriving After an Abusive Relationship with Dr. Kelly and survivor Kendall Ann Combs. We speak about signs that you are experiencing abuse, the do's and don'ts for loved ones of abuse victims and survivors, and how to navigate life after abuse. We get both insight from a therapist and personal insight from a survivor. So here is Dr. Kelly and Kendall Ann. Enjoy. Kevin disapproves. Also, you, Dr. Kelly. Kelly, Dr. Kelly and Kendall Ann, I might get tongue-tied, okay? <laughs> okay, so why don't you go ahead and, and just uh, tell a little bit about yourselves. Um, we'll go with Kendall Ann, why don't you start with tell us a little bit about your... Um, sure. So it kind of all ties into how I met Dr. Kelly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was in an abusive relationship, and when I got out, I was like... I had all of these resources that most people do not have. I had a father who sat next to me in a restraining order hearing. I had my own money. I had a great job with health insurance so I could go to therapy. So I just felt really lucky that I had all of those resources. And the whole time I just kept feeling like, okay, I got to pay this back into the universe somehow. But I I didn't know how I was going to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so my best friend, Gretchen, she was like, you should have a podcast. You should have a podcast. And I was like, what am I going to talk about? Like no one was, <laughs> no one was to hear me just talk about things for an hour. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of clicked. Okay. I can make a podcast where I interview mental health experts about sort of the things that I had learned in my journey and then just other mental health topics. So that's how I started my podcast, High Heels and Heartache. And um, Dr. Kelly was on it. So tell me a little bit about yourself, Dr. Kelly. So I, as you mentioned, I'm a trauma-informed therapist. I've been working for about 18 years in the field now. Um, And much like many therapists, my population I focus on has evolved. Mm -hmm. However, in the last, I'd say five plus years, trauma has become my primary wheelhouse. I work with survivors of different, whether it be intimate partner violence or other complex forms of trauma. Um, in that journey, I became really in tune with using the body. So I got certified to teach yoga. I'm an art therapist. Um, that's actually my graduate degree is in is art therapy, which really gets the body on board from the beginning. Um, I have a private practice here in Cary, right outside Raleigh. Uh, there are 10 of us on staff and we offer just kind of anything you can get your hands on that's alternative or body oriented and not just kind of staying stuck in the head all the time. Um, I believe strongly in advocating for those who can't afford therapy. So that has been kind of the mission statement of Kelly Counseling and Wellness, my practice since its inception, where we've offered deep sliding fees and always taken all the insurances, even if they're not kind to us. I did find what was interesting about the book is that it was like part memoir. I think you even said it in there, part memoir, part self-empowerment, mm-hmm. which I haven't seen. I don't think I've seen that done before. It mm-hmm. hasn't been. Because mm-hmm. Kellyanne, you are narrating your story. Mm-hmm. And then Dr. Kelly, you're going in there and you are as a professional sort of breaking down her story and then also adding adding your professional evaluation to it all. Mm-hmm. I, I like to say that it's, it's like 
the reader and Dr. Kelly are like watching the movie of what's happening with to me. And mm-hmm. then like Dr. Kelly's hitting the pause button and being like, okay, when that just happened, <laughs> that's, that's a great way to put it. Of this. <laughs> Um, and then like, she really breaks it down and then we move on. Okay. Now we're in the next stage of the relationship and the movie is starting again. A lot of times when you hear stories about abuse or intimate partner violence, they are so far, they feel so far away from Mm -hmm. a lot of people's experience and Mm -hmm. they're, you know, almost like extreme examples of things that you see on the news and I felt like what was missing was a voice to be like, this is happening in the house next door, mm-hmm. you know, to people that you see every day. This isn't something, you know, that, that is so extreme that you only see it on the news. Right. So, or that, I, that person's going to, it's going to manifest with like just bruises up and down their body. And you're like, oh, I need to get, you know, a social worker involved here or something. Exactly. So I felt like there was like a little piece that was, you know, kind of missing in the people that were telling their stories. Or like the books that I was reading um, after I left my abuser, they would be like little antidotes of stories. And then they would be, you know, a therapist giving their opinion or pointing things out. But I never felt connected to those little antidotes because it just felt like one moment in time. Mm -hmm. And I thought that if people could see the whole progression no matter how embarrassing, you know, some of that stuff is to have to write down and to expose that it it would do so much good for people who could see their own experience in that and people who have no idea what abuse looks like. Did you guys like, now, I don't know if I'm making this up. Did you do an analogy about like a lobster in a pot and you know, oh, I did. Um, not, okay. Not the it. lobster. It was the, uh, uh, when they make frog legs. Okay. <laughs> um, and <laughs> just, and it kind of, and that's interesting. So you could tie it into one of the things I thought was so unique about the way that Kendall Ann shared her story is that we didn't launch right. She didn't launch right into this is all the horrible things that I experienced. And these are all the horrible things he did. But she showed like, how could you get love bombed and how could you get hooked into someone and how could that progression slowly build up? And that was where the analogy was coming in, where when you take a a frog and you throw them into a boiling pot of water, they're going to jump out because there's going to have that signal that there's danger. But if you put them into the pot of water and you just slowly turn it up, that's how they make frog legs because they they have no idea that they're this is very graphic, but being, <laughs> being murdered basically. So I don't think I'm yeah. eating frog legs ever again. Actually, I don't know if I ever have. So, <laughs> I, just have so I don't eat them. <laughs> um, so how, so do you think it's very common for um, victims to not realize that they are in an abusive relationship? I didn't realize it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, in the book, you, you see like a lot of italicized sentences and I tried to, those italicized sentences were really my thoughts when it was happening to me. Cause I wanted to give some transparency into just the confusion that it is in, in the beginning. Like what, that, that's weird. And like that your gut instinct is telling you like, that's weird. But then the person is manipulating in all of these other ways. So mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't really understand that I was being abused um, certainly until it was almost too late. Um, and then when 
I'm my first therapist after, you know, I was, I left my abuser when she asked me if I identified as a survivor of domestic violence, I was like, no. And it was like kind of shocking for her. She was like, okay, all right, we'll get to that. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So that, that took a while because in my mind, um, when I was first out, it felt like I was in, um, like a relationship, a high conflict relationship that when I tried to leave him, he absolutely flipped out and I almost lost my life because of that. That's the way I was viewing it. And it wasn't until I had really good therapists like Dr. Kelly, who would kind of sit with me and be like, no, 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 Pendleland. Like this, this is a progression. This is, this is what abuse actually looks like. It's not, or the frog would jump out of the pot. Yeah. So that, that's, yeah, I, I, yeah, I love that analogy. Um, so I want to hear a little bit about love bombing. What that, that, this is a little bit of a new concept I've heard over the last few months mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, can either of you explain what, maybe what that means? So I, I can speak to this. Um, love bombing is any effort made in order to sway or influence another person through affectionate efforts. So this is a very broad term. And one thing that I think is really important to note is that love bombing is not always dangerous and it's not always a negative thing, but it's very hard to detect when it is a negative, dangerous thing. So when we first fall for someone, we're going to put our best foot forward. We're going to put, I think it was Chris Rock or someone says, we're going to put our representative forward. Um, And it's, it's, kind of like, who do I, who does this person want me to be? So, I mean, how often I remember being so nervous on a date, I dropped my fork like four times and that is so not me. Um, well, you know, so, when, when my husband and I first got together, I was a great listener. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So that's actually love bombing. The problem with love bombing, sorry. you're like, sorry, love bomb you. Um, and actually another time where love bombing shows up too, is within the progression of any relationship when maybe there's a conflict and someone is trying to sway their partner to love them again or to find affection towards them again. So you can think of someone bringing home a bouquet of flowers because they messed up. So those are actually forms of love bombing. The, the time where it becomes like a bomb versus like little love missiles. I don't know. Um, a little love missile, yeah. Love BBs. Love, yes, love BBs would be when it's done in a way in order to gain control so that you can manipulate in the future. So I'm going to love bomb you and I'm going to love bomb you to the point where it's going to be extreme. So some of my efforts are going to be very grandiose, not sustainable. And secondly, I'm going to love bomb in just this specific manipulative way where I'm going to figure out what it is you need and what it is you're insecure about or what, where those holes are and where I can fill in. So it's the, the intention has a big difference on whether love bombing becomes abusive or just an effort to court or woo someone. So it can be a little tricky. Yeah, I um. I kind of thought my idea was it was just something at the beginning of a relationship. And so my husband and I, we got an argument of, were you love bombing me? Cause you wrote me a love song in those first couple of months, 10 years in, where's my love song? Where's it? 
Yeah, but, that's the know. funny thing is that it should and it should kind of die down a little bit because you know that that initial stage wears down. But yeah, the infatuation, yeah. Right, the infatuation. Um, you tell the difference though between okay, this is just like the typical, like, I'm going to just put a little extra effort into this because I'm courting you versus, or, or that I'm sorry versus like, I'm using this to manipulate you in a larger way. You sort of feel it. Mm-hmm. You like, you feel like, hmm, like this is, this is a lot. Like, and, and a lot of times, at least in my experience, what happens is I would like divulge something and my abuser was smart. He wouldn't love bomb me right away in that thing that I had just told him. He would wait a little bit and then that would show up. Mm. So, you know, just things like, I, you know, I would say like, oh my gosh, you know, my job is very demanding. So I'm like, I'm on the road all day and I have to, you know, then at night sit down at the computer, do all these notes and do all these things. And it's just, I'm so stressed out. Like I don't even eat. And then like the next week he would like, order me pizza right Mm -hmm. and so and have it delivered to my house and it feels like oh this is nice but then it's also kind of like but that was a little weird you know like that was would it come after a fight or the beginning okay so um for me in the beginning the love bombing that I was getting was that he was like a really good listener um and he was always telling he was like um, mirroring back the things that I wanted a partner to like in me. Um, and so that was making me feel like, oh, someone, I feel seen. Like yeah. this, this person understand me, I feel seen. But he knew that because in our early dates, he did barely any talking. Mm-hmm. He would just ask me questions. And then all of a sudden he became that person everything you had just described to him Mm -hmm. so it was just kind of a it was a front it was a front to manipulate Mm -hmm. to use your pizza example um that can actually be an incredibly sweet uh, gesture and and if there's a listener listening saying oh my goodness my my partner does something like that for me they're love bombing me the gesture is not always the love bombing. It's not always the issue. It's does the other behavior outside of the gesture match the positive affirmation of the gesture? So is the love bomber matching the way that they love you in other areas of your life and other areas of your time together that match these efforts? Whereas if it's just, I'm just going to do this in these singular events to try to get you to depend on me. That's very different. Mm-hmm. Interesting. The, another term that I have just learned over like the last year or two is gaslighting. Mm-hmm. And I think I understand it, but I would love, <laughs> I would love for you to explain it because I was trying to think of like, okay, well, am I being gaslit or am I really oh, just overreacting? And so mm-hmm. I, I think sometimes terms can get thrown around really easily. And so I think it is important to have like a really, like a good understanding about it. So you know, if you are truly being manipulated. Mm-hmm. If, if the person that you feel like you're overreacting to is constantly telling you you're overreacting about every single thing, even if it's a big deal to you, you're probably being gaslit. Oh, <laughs> that's a good one. Mm-hmm. 
So gaslighting is really any effort to destabilize your sense of self, your ego, your reality. So it makes its, its entire purpose is to make you doubt yourself. And so that can look like how Kendall Ann was saying, um, saying that all your feelings are not valid and your feelings are over the top. That can be a form of gaslighting or completely blame shifting on a constant basis. That's gaslighting. Um, gaslighting can also be done in a third party perspective where you could, your abuser or an abusive person could say, so-and-so thinks you're crazy. So-and-so doesn't like you. No one thinks that you're stable. Everyone. So that's, I, I think that's when gaslighting starts to explode to an even broader uh, effort to make you say, well, am I a horrible person? Am I all these things that my abuser is trying to make me believe? Because then, oh my goodness, you're my savior. You're the one that wants me. You know, yeah, what's I'm funny not- though. I'm just going to throw this out there. Have, did you guys watch The Bachelor this week? No. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, oh my God. So when he went, <laughs> okay. So when Clayton was, he was kind of bordering on gaslighting her. Yes. He, yeah. he had sex with two other women and he was like, you're mad. You're mad at me. Why? <laughs> then he sent her home because she was mad about it. I know. Now this is where it gets a little tricky with editing. And also he did. Yes. And that's where I think it gets kind of weird because mm-hmm. like, Every time someone's upset with you doesn't mean they're gaslighting you. So he was upset that she did not come to him and say, these are my boundaries. Okay, that's valid. So in that sense, maybe he wasn't gaslighting. We'll give him that. But on the other hand, he was not really taking any responsibility. And I think that's when you got to question gaslighting. Kendall Ann, you should go watch this one episode. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to watch the whole season because you know, up until then he seemed like it's pretty, a pretty decent, you know, mm-hmm. eh, a little boring, a little, whatever, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Little no vanilla. yeah. Another way you, you know that you're being gaslit is if you come away with lots of your interactions with that person being confused, like, mm-hmm. wait, or thinking you have a totally different recollection yes. than what they're telling you, ha- you happens. That's another kind of sign like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. And if that frequently happens, right? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Does mm-hmm. it make sense? Okay, maybe once right. in a while, if somebody might, might have not understood the situation correctly, but if someone's constantly telling you, oh no, you, you, didn't, you didn't understand the situation correctly. It's like, at some point you're like, well, actually, no, I, I did. Yeah, yeah. I did. Mm-hmm. I, I got to the point where I was actually keeping this um, like spiral notebook that I was hiding where I was writing. And it wasn't like it was a journal either. I was just like writing down like, okay, this is exactly what was said in this conversation. I said these words. He said these words. Okay, let me put this away. And then ju- just so when he told me that what I remembered was wrong, I could look for myself late in my little journal and I would know what had happened. Is that a, is that a common tactic someone could use to not be gaslit or try to prevent that? I've seen quite a few of my clients use their phones to record their partners. And it's almost like they want to come in and they want to have me listen, or they want to flush out what was going on. 
And what I will sometimes point out is if you feel, if you're feeling that confused or insecure, that it feels like you want to record, then that is probably, and I will not admonish them for wanting to share it with me, certainly, but it's probably a sign that it's not very healthy. It's pretty toxic. Yeah. Maybe they're just needing that validation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right. This is happening. Right. I think if you feel like you need to be a detective for your own relationship, that there's a sign, there's some trust and toxicity issues going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you brought up Clayton's episode (laughs) because I watched it. Was it last night? Yeah, it was last night. I'm like, he's he's gaslighting her. (laughs) It was also like, I, I had, I had the book out and Mm -hmm. I was writing down like some notes for today or Mm -hmm. for tonight. And I'm also watching this. Like I I was watching that right after. Yeah. Just like, is he's gaslight? He just spun that. Yes. Oh my good. And I was like rooting for him. Cause I'm like, yeah, okay. I get it. This mm-hmm. is the experiment. But then, at least validate her. Yeah. At zero least validation. validate her. He couldn't. And she was so calm. She was so calm and he got, he got riled up and I felt bad. So she was, she was staying so level-headed. It felt like in the conversation, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. anyway, it's a, it's very, it was a very confusing. We all got gaslit by him. We don't know what to do <laughs> Amen. (laughs) Anyway, everyone go watch that episode. (laughs) What are some ways or some signs that a partner is abusing power? And what was it? Maybe you can give us some examples from your own story, Kendall Ann. So for me, it was a, I felt like everything that I did was wrong and that I was losing parts of myself, but it happens very, very slowly. So it would be things Like, um, I would watch the way he did things and then I would try to replicate that so that he didn't admonish me later for the way that I did the same thing. Mm. Or, um, there was a lot of, um, isolation is really the key of in the abuse of power. Um, because you learn not to, um, tell other people about what's going on and you're you're giving up parts of yourself like for me he would tell me oh I miss you so much when you're at dance class and so dance class was one time a week for two hours like you can't be without me for two freaking hours Mm -hmm. but the way he wielded that power over me was to say I miss you so much it hurts my feelings you must not love me as much as I love you. It's very, you know, hurtful that you, that you leave me to do this. You know, the dance class is more important than I am. And so because of that, then, well, first my, the person that I'm, I'm like, well, I'm going anyway. And then I would go. And then the whole time I would feel like awful. And then it just wasn't worth going anymore. So that's the kind of thing that's happening. So you're just giving up the power of everything that you do because all you're doing is just living your life to appease that Mm -hmm. person Mm -hmm. and you know in your example that you just gave of the dance class there was a moment of love bombing and gaslighting all within that because he used his love as a weapon so that's the love bombing piece that I just love you so much And then don't you want to appease me? Because if you do, then that means you're a good partner. That's the gaslighting part. And so within both of those, he then finds the things that matter to her and takes over them. 
And so when we lose our power in an abusive relationship, it's the parts that strengthen us. And that can be things like career or hobbies or finances or friendships. Those things that give us individualism within a relationship are threatening to someone who wants to abuse and someone who is a narcissist. And so as you were mentioning, Kendall Ann, isolation, there is so much strength in a community. And when someone has a great community, whether it be a dance class or friends, it's going to be a whole lot harder to continue to pull the power away from them. So it's, we, we mentioned the power of control wheel in the book. I would definitely encourage listeners to go check out the, the diagram because it talks about all the different various ways that an abuser can pick and choose and pull power away from you. Another example is um, one night I wanted to go out with my friend, my cousin. She's one of my best friends. We're three months apart. I used to love when we wore matching outfits. She didn't love it so much, but I was, <laughs> uh, and he was very concerned about my safety during that. And so in order, the compromise that I had to make is that I would instantly answer his text messages and answer his phone calls on the second or third ring. I'm just, I was sitting across from my cousin eating dinner and the whole time, I mean, like every minute, it's just like, well, you know, how are your friends, guys? How's this? They're calling all of it. And so Gosh. what that does is it makes you like, I'm not, I'm not doing that anymore. It's embarrassing, first of all. And they're just like, what, why am I doing this? It's not worth it if he's just going to harass me this whole time. But it's under, I found it's usually under the guise of something else. Like uh-huh. he wanted to protect me and make sure that nobody was bothering my, you know, cousin and I while we were out. It was like at dinner, was- you're at dinner, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's very, that's, that would be so confusing and frustrating. It would probably make somebody just say like, this isn't worth even going out. This is embarrassing. This is, Mm -hmm. that's what happens. Yeah. And you seem like an independent woman to me. And so I could see like how that would be like sort of humiliating to feel like you're having an answer to your boyfriend, but at the same time, you're you're in fear of if you don't, what's going to happen? Exactly. And remember, because of the love bombing phase and the fairy tale phase of the beginning of the relationship, this is, this is the man you love. This is the man that loves the parts of you that you don't love so much. Mm -hmm. And he's, he just wants to be your protector. Why would like, you feel like the one that's doing the thing that's wrong because this man loves you so much. He just wants to protect you. You Mm -hmm. don't, I didn't see the forest through the trees that he was isolating me from everything. Sure. Were there, so have you seen any other tactics, Dr. Kelly, that people will use to isolate or pull people away from their families and loved ones? Well, first of all, they'll definitely spin any, any negative comments that are made towards them or about them. They'll make it about the person who's insulting or criticizing them. You know, so for instance, if you're, if some of your loved ones don't like your partner, that's going to give them more fuel to flame that they're going to say, well, they just don't want us to be together. They don't want the best for you. I want the best for you. You know, so those are going to be those gaslighting tactics, but 
as I mentioned, something that I see happen often um, with clients that I work with that is not explored enough is financial abuse. And yes, yes. I would love to hear about it. Well, and it can look different in different scenarios. Like as soon as if you've been love bombed and the relationship moves very, very quickly and there is a way that the partner takes your independence away by having you live together, for instance, and intermingling finances very quickly before you have the ability to kind of create your own footing of what it looks like to both be independent contributors that can put the person at a little bit more of a, a vulnerable state, not, and this, I don't think this was your situation, Kendall Lamb, but some people who are targeted by these types of individuals are people who do need the support as well. And that is a tactic used, you know, where they'll kind of look out for that. Um, so abuse of power, I think it also, it's going to, it'll, it'll continue to weave in some of the other areas that we'll probably talk about because the whole point of abuse is power to attain power. And you know, something that I do see some of my clients who are married experience is a financial abuse of mis of, um, deception where their partner or their spouse will threaten to take everything or were threatened to leave them without any alimony or take retirement. And I always try to encourage them talk to a lawyer and get the real information or go online. There's lots of free resources because 90% of the time, what they're threatening is not even legally possible. Wow. And that's, that's a way that the fear of financial instability can be used as a manipulation tactic. Yeah. Just, just not being educated on what your options are. So when it comes to verbal abuse, what is the difference? Like, where is it crossing the line? So where is it like a normal couple argument versus, oh, this has gotten like toxic and you are now in the category of like verbally abusing? What did you feel, Kendallan? Um, That was another slow burn. Um, mm-hmm. And again, it kind of all goes back to that beginning of the relationship because he knew that I, you know, like many women have, you know, self-esteem issues with my body. Mm -hmm. And it started with like, oh, you know, like, oh, I'm surprised that you would wear that because that's something that you said that you feel insecure about. Mm -hmm. And then it was moving to your fat. Um, and then it was the name calling for me was, was what really made me like, oof, oof, oof. but it, it didn't start with the worst names, right? He wasn't calling me like an F and bit. It was, it started with, are you going to wear that? Oh, you don't look very good in that. Oh, that you look fat. And that, that's kind of the trajectory of, um, where it goes. And there was also, um, an increasing of intensity. Um, so it wasn't just like the words that were being used. It was everything like the energy that was coming out of him was like, this is, this feels scary to me. This doesn't feel like someone, you know, might accidentally say something that they shouldn't say, which we've all done. We're all human Mm -hmm. and it's constant. It's just at you, at you. Does it feel calculated at all? Um, sometimes, sometimes, um, like he liked to call me stupid 
or a moron or an idiot. All of that was something that he liked to call me because he knew that I would be like, no, I'm not, mm. you know, like that, that, that was a thing that he knew would almost like engage me in it. Um, wanted to get a rise out of you. Um, a little bit, but it was, um, if to me, it felt like he, he, not so much a rise out of me, but that was the thing that he wanted to break. Like he wanted me to think I was dumb. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- that's how it, it felt. And maybe that, and maybe if he can do that, that means you'll lose trust in yourself and your own decision-making. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I might not leave because I'm worried. I won't be able to, you know, if I'm a dummy, I can't keep my job or, you know, mm-hmm. all of that. Right. And what you were saying about energy, I think is a big, uh, area of focus for what defines the difference between, a healthy argument and one that's abusive. So abuse, verbal abuse, and this is actually something that, you know, is very important to me to continue to champion for, because up until this point, physical abuse seemed to be the gold standard of what would allow someone to say that they were abused. There's even laws in place that create that kind of dialogue and dynamic. The thing of it is, and we explored this in the book about the impact that verbal abuse can have on the brain is very similar, if not the same as physical abuse. So when we experience trauma from abuse, it doesn't matter if it was physical or verbal. So the thing about verbal abuse is it's not necessarily even the word. It doesn't have to be something as heinous, unintelligible and ridiculous as the words he was saying. Like I just, how unoriginal. (laughs) you know what I mean but horribly but horribly painful and and hurtful at the same time it's as Kendallan was saying it's the energy um if and and also the intention so if the intention in your argument is not to solve and to meet each other at some resolution but to hurt to um condemn and to use contempt contempt is a huge facet of verbal abuse and verbal abuse doesn't even have to be talking. It can be the lack of talking. It can be things like silent treatment. It can be things like with withholding love. These can be things that can evolve from what we are classically calling verbal abuse. But I don't know. I kind of feel like I want to champion for changing the word to just mental abuse. Yeah. Instead of verbal abuse, because it's not always just verbal. Yeah. It's the whole package. It encompasses so much. Mm-hmm. I get that about the energy. Cause like you can, mm-hmm. you can say a word, but then it's almost like someone can say a word, but they're trying to like cut you with that word. It's almost yeah. feels physical. <laughs> you can say a mm-hmm. word and it's almost like they're stopping in you in the face with it. So yeah, there's definitely. Yeah. No, so I, I can't remember the, the, the exact statistic, but I think there's something like 80 to 90% of what we perceive is tone and then only 10 to 15. I'm just throwing these numbers. I know they're big numbers um, is the actual words we're saying. Mm-hmm. So that's why text messaging and messaging in general is a horrible way to resolve a conflict because you can't regulate. You don't really know what the person's trying to convey. 
Well, I just like to send all my texts in all caps, you know, then people just think I'm always yelling at them. (laughs) And no judgment. I have little kids. We can't always argue in front of them. So sometimes, and my husband who has ADD, like he processes better when he texts me at the end. He's like, these are all the things that I did wrong. And I know I'm going to get that text down the road. And those are great. But I'm saying those ones that are like, oh. Yeah, no, I, I get it. I do like to text sometimes just so I can like have a very clear perspective. So for me, writing things down really helps. Mm-hmm. Um, not for everybody, but it helps me just like, these are all my thoughts because sometimes I'll get overwhelmed. It's my ADHD when there's like, I don't know if that's only what it is, but it's just like when there's too many, too much going on, I'm like, I just need to focus on what my thoughts were because I'm like too emotional. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, it's no, that's very normal. Do you find that there's any misconceptions about sexual abuse? And I'll tell you what I, I'll tell you what I mean. For example, I know some people who are taught that they, um, once you're married, it's Mm. like a sexual contract that you can, Mm. you sort of just, that's how, that's just part of marriage and your body is sort of become your husband's body at that point. So, um, for me, the, the way that that started was bullying about sex. Like if I didn't want to do it, then he would throw a a temper tantrum and that guys have done that before, you know, like, okay, whatever. Like that's not it. But then it started to be like so intense that I ended up just doing it when I didn't want to do it. Um, just so that I didn't feel that kind of, um, like, like venom at me mm-hmm. um and I also felt like I okay I needed to do this to kind of keep the peace and you yeah. should never be letting someone touch you to keep the peace mm-hmm. um and then from there it just sort of started like being more intense and more intense and I was just you know like waking up to him on me and you know I had never been taught what sexual abuse was. I, I just, I, you know, like all I knew was when I was younger, like don't let adults touch you. I didn't know, you know, as an adult, you are, you have body autonomy Mm -hmm. and no one is allowed to touch you unless you want them to touch you. Mm -hmm. And so when things were happening to me, it was, it was very confusing because I felt like this was someone that I loved, um, in the beginning of the relationship, you know, this was something that, that we were doing and, you know, it, it made us, it made me feel connected to him. So now he's like bullying me when I don't want to do it, but maybe I'm the one that's wrong because if I was having sex with him before and now it's not as frequently, is that me doing something wrong? Right. Like, am am I messing up the relationship somehow? Um, but again, it, they, it just, it looks different than the way you think it's going to look when you, you know, wake up in the morning and you are being uh, honestly attacked Mm -hmm. in sexual ways before you can even, you know, open your eyes. It's very startling. It's shocking. Um, The first couple of times it happened to me, I actually, it took me, I know this, this sounds crazy, but it took me a minute to understand what the hell was going on. 
because it was such like a, a sneak attack situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I write in the book that I ended up doing things like um, I would set, my, I would ask him what time he would needed to get up the next morning. And I would set my alarm earlier than that time so mm-hmm. that I could actually physically remove myself from him. Um, another thing that was, that was very hard for me is like, I'm an affectionate person. Like all my friends, I'm like, like hug them and kiss them and, you know, squeeze them. Um, and my mom is very affectionate. She's always giving me hugs and I could not have any casual affection with my abuser. Not at all. Not in any way. If I was having a bad day and I asked for a hug or any kind of affection of support, he was pawing at me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, you feel like your you have surrendered your body right. in, in that kind of relationship. And it, it's, it's, it's really tough and it makes you feel really worthless and awful. Yeah. And definitely no one should ever have to feel that surrender because whether or not it's a marital contract, a religious contract, a societal contract, a gender contract, your body is your body and consent is fully reversible at any time, at any moment. And it can be tough. I know, you know, what you're mentioning Chelsea about certain beliefs and certain religions and certain ideologies are going to look at what you're agreeing to, I guess. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately that just breeds further abuse. It does. Yeah. And until we give women and, and men, but I mean, mainly we're discussing this power dynamic right now because we're three women sitting here, mm-hmm. um, until, you know, women are given that autonomy to freely give that consent and reverse it. If it is what they do not want to be doing in that moment, then there's no, there can be no sense of equanimity or safety in those relationships. So if someone's listening and they feel like they are being pressured just because of the kind of relationship they're in, they need to, and they can remember that that is not a contract for sex or intimacy. Intimacy is gain. I think there could probably be for a lot of women guilt because Mm -hmm. so many are raised through just, you know, through TV, even not even just religion, that that is a womanly duty and they should feel like honored to be like sexually objectified. Well, can I tell you, and it's funny because we kind of write about this a little bit. And so the other day, um, my daughter is six and she was saying something about um, a little boy who was like chasing her on the playground. And she said like, why... She goes, why was he being mean? And my husband <laughs> looked and goes, oh, it's because he likes you. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. I, yes, I've heard this I was time. like, no. <laughs> and I said, no, honey. It's because he was being playful and he didn't know how to tell you he wanted to hang out with you. And that's what he should. And I'm trying to correct it, right? Mm-hmm. So we put the kids to bed. Oh, you better know I had a full on conversation with <laughs> him about that and I also let him know we're teaching our son different we are teaching that you do not show affection through aggression yeah well we're taught so young yeah I I have heard those things before and I have caught myself saying those things before well that's what we were all taught as kids 
Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's so that. that, yeah, yeah. We learn young. That's for sure. Yeah. I need to, I need to think of different language. <laughs> <laughs> Define physical abuse because I have heard stories from women who have been grabbed by the wrists or been blocked in a doorway or things that feel like a gray area to them. Mm-hmm. And so my question for you is where, for, for both of you, when does it become physical abuse? It's any physical intimidation. I mean, any, you do not have to be struck in order for it to be physical abuse. So any way in which to control the physical body of the other person. So like you were mentioning being cornered into a doorway or not being allowed to leave a room. Think of it this way, people, those horrific stories of people who are locked in, in closets, that's, that is a form of physical abuse because you're losing physical autonomy. There are ways that physical abuse can escalate. And I will say that if a listener has ever had someone place their hands on their neck, you need to immediately call, what is the, uh, the hotline.org, correct? Mm-hmm. Immediately, because that is so statistically more likely that you are going to be seriously injured, or even killed. Um, so it can start as just intimidation and um, that, that restriction of free movement of the body. And it can escalate to things like you were saying, grabbing a wrist, pushing, hitting, shoving, and then violence. So, um, and I know Kendall Ann can relate to the door thing. I saw your face when she mentioned that. Oh, the door thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so m- mine started with everything that you've mentioned with the grabbing of the wrist and all of that. And I absolutely echo Dr. Kelly, like all of those things that that's all physical abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for me in my situation, I was, what I thought was physical abuse would be if he slapped me or punched me that that's what yeah. I had in my mind. That's physical abuse. I think that is such a clear one for people. They're like, well, obviously that's so obvious. And then, and then like we've been saying, that's the clear one you leave at that point. Right. Mm -hmm. And for me, you know, it was hard because it, it, it started with, you know, grabbing and then blocking me in a room when we were having an argument and then me trying to get by and being smashed up against the door, which if it's never happened to you, it's, it's hard to describe like how violent that feels to be pushed mm-hmm. up against something, particularly mm-hmm. when you're trying to escape away from that person. Mm-hmm. So that, that's how mine went. It went from, you know, grabbing at me to smashing me up against doors to pushing me down on the ground and not allowing me to stand up. Um, and that's another thing where you feel so vulnerable on the ground with a violent man standing above you. It is absolutely terrifying mm-hmm. because you recognize that he could, he could do whatever he wanted. You are not in a position, you know, where you can get away easily. Um, so any kind of that pushing down, um, and I, you know, I'll echo what Dr. Kelly said, as soon as someone puts their hands around your neck, um, that is 
the, the reddest of all flags that you have now crossed into a new realm where the violence will get worse and it will get very um, terrifying. So one of the um, listeners asked, why do, why do victims stay? I'll take that one. All right. Um, so that's a question that I hear a lot. Um, people personally ask me and they kind of ask me to, you know, speak for everybody. And one thing I think that we have to do is sort of reframe that question because I think it comes from a really good place of people who haven't experienced abuse and they're trying to understand it. But when you, when you're asked like, why did you stay, um, inadvertently it is making the survivor have the accountability and the responsibility for what happens in that relationship. Mm -hmm. So if you say to someone, what was your abuser doing to trap you in that relationship? Hmm. That is when you will get those answers that you're actually looking for um, when you ask why women stay. So Another thing that a lot of people don't know um, when they ask that question is you're trapped by your abuser and most of us leave many times Mm -hmm. and get manipulated or threatened or terrorized back in. Um, So again, that's kind of like when someone's asking, well, why do people stay? You're, it's, it's not you, right? Like, you're, 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 you're just trying to survive every fucking day, honestly. Um, and when we're, if we frame it, what was your abuser doing to you um, to manipulate you into staying? Then we, we get more answers. I love um, that. And the answer to that, to the question of what did they do to trap you is different with every single survivor. So I've had conversations with people where their abuser said they would kill their children if, if she left. They will kill her if she left. As you know, Dr. Kelly pointed out, some people are, they, they cannot leave because the person has trapped them financially. They have zero resources. Where are they going to go? They don't even know where to look. Another way of trapping people is not only do you have zero resources, that person, you know, is on your phone constantly. That person is on your computer constantly. So you can't get any information. Mm-hmm. For me, when, when I would leave, my abuser would make me feel like I was doing something awful to him. That, I, that was his manipulation of me that me leaving him was breaking his heart. Didn't he know, didn't I know what a great person he was? Remember all of this stuff in the beginning of our relationship when we loved each other so much? Remember all of that? Oh, you're going to sacrifice this whole relationship and, you know, how much I love you, how much I adore you just for, you know, one little fight. You're really packing up your stuff and going. Mm -hmm. So it really depends on the way that the abuser is trapping the person who it, it wants to probably leave their relationship. 
how can the friends of victims and family members of victims, how can they stay in their lives without pushing them away? How can they be somebody that the victim will confide in and, and speak to and be a safe place? So that's an interesting question that I've been asked uh, a couple times on a couple different podcasts and something that comes to my mind and I'm almost doing like a little challenge here to give my answer and see what Kendall Ann thinks because I don't know if you and I have ever talked about this. Um, something that I had mentioned was trying to really take a non-judgmental stance like do not do the things like why are you why aren't you leaving why aren't you getting out don't you know what kind of danger you're in um versus continuing to be a constant presence in their life as much as they will safely be able to have you be a presence um definitely don't stop inviting them to things definitely don't stop thinking that they want to be in a relationship with you just because there may be a temporary pause to the relationship because of what they're going through. It doesn't mean they love you any less. And I can say from personal experience, having had very, very important people in my life go through abusive relationships. Um, for instance, there was my very best friend who was one of our readers and I actually thank her for her help in you know, the book was when it got to the point where what she was going through was starting to impact our friendship negatively, because it was just, it was almost like I was getting pulled into the cycle with her. I sat down with her one day and I just said, I love you so much. And I'm going to just con constantly be here. I feel like until, and this, this is going to maybe, I don't know if this was the right thing or not, but I basically said, when you are ready to leave, I am like, so here, I'm so here to like, talk about whatever you need to talk about. But it almost felt like it was becoming um, a negative piece in our relationship for me to get too involved in the relationship. However, our friendship never faltered. Um, so that's my take, but I'm curious. I've li we've literally never talked about this. This wasn't something we talked about in the book. If we do a second edition, we should, because this question always gets asked. Yeah, so well, I know for myself, like I just, I've known a few different friends that have gone through um, relationships like this. And it's, it, for me, it's always been a difficult thing to navigate because I want to give them I want to say, just get the hell out. <laughs> what are you doing? You just want to like shake them. But that's like the quickest way I could possibly, you know, push them away. Yeah. Well, like for me, I, I told no one anything that was going on. Like literally my mom's my best friend. She knew nothing. She didn't have any idea about any type of any abuse that was happening. All she knew was that when I would, if I was on the phone with her and I heard his car in the driveway, I would say, I got to go. He's coming home. And mm. he doesn't like it when I'm on the phone with someone else, when he gets home. And so that was the only thing that she really knew. Mm. Um, and the reason why I didn't tell was because I thought that the people that loved me, not that they would judge me, but that they would make me choose that I would feel like I had to choose my partner 
or my friends and family, because I felt like if they knew what was happening with him, they would never be around him. They would hate him forever. There would be absolutely no way that we could all be together, that I couldn't have both parts simultaneously. So I chose to compartmentalize them, um, which, which feeds into exactly what my abuser wanted. Um, so I would say for the people that did love me and did notice changes in me, like I was being isolated, I was very irritable. Um, they would just say things like, is everything all right? Anything you want to talk about? Um, and one thing that my mom has always done since I was little is um, if I couldn't say it, I could write it down for her. And sometimes sometimes you, you can't look someone in the face and tell them the things that, that you're going through because it is so painful to watch the people that love you hurt for you. Mm-hmm. So just little things like that. Like if one of if you think that one of your friends might be in this type of relationship to say, Hey, I, I feel like, you know, there's, there's something that's going on here. I feel like you pulling away and I'm always going to be here for you. I won't judge you. Mm-hmm. And if you don't want to tell me, you can always yes. write it down for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that, that would have been, that would have been helpful for me. That's such great advice. I'm like, I'm, I'm putting it right up here. <laughs> you know, the way it started was, um, the way it started was when I was a teenager, I had my own phone line. And, um, one time I was, I was being bullied at school, but you no, know, I didn't want to tell. And there we go. Pattern. Um, <laughs> and I came home from school and I was so upset and I was crying. My mom said, what's wrong? I said, I don't want to talk about it. So I went up to my room and my mom went in the kitchen and my mom called me from the kitchen phone to my oh, line. Mm-hmm. And it just gave it enough distance where I felt comfortable. Like I could tell her the story of the person that was bullying me. Hmm. So stuff like that, I, I think that I think that that's something to keep in mind is that when you're in one of these these relationships, like I said, you're fighting for your life, and and any interaction could be the one. So that's how you feel, right? So you're living your life. Okay, this is how you like me to fold laundry. All right, this is the way we put things in the refrigerator. Okay, yep, you're right. I, I am stupid. I didn't I didn't remember that correctly. So any kind of um, like confrontation that you will feel like you need to fight back. So just, you know, be very calm with the person and just let them know that you're there for them whenever you need them and they can tell everything or they can tell nothing and it doesn't change the way you feel about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, I think that's, I, I, I know that often, I mean, throughout my life, I've seen different people go through these types of things and it can be very frustrating for the person looking in Mm -hmm. because you feel like the answer is so clear. Mm -hmm. And it's, but I I have, as I've gotten so wise through my many years of experience, (laughs) I've learned that sometimes just shutting my freaking mouth is the best thing I can do. Mm -hmm. And just listening and just saying, I'm I'm sorry. I know you're going to make the right choice or, you know, or that's right for you. 
Yeah. And just one little thing about what abuse can do to like the psyche and the mind is that it does eventually become cyclical and an addiction in, in certain forms. And it could be the addiction to the abuse cycle, to that, to the relief, to the, to the calm phase. And then it ramps back up and then the calm phase, and then it ramps back up. And this creates this really unhealthy dynamic within our emotional state. So sometimes when I'm working with or talking to maybe a friend who's frustrated with someone who's in an unhealthy relationship or a client who has a family member is I try to make them reflect on some of their own addictions. Mm-hmm. You know, like when we all think about that one thing we struggle with to, to let go of or to not do, it's not easy not to do. And it's not easy not to struggle with. So it's- at 11 PM every night <laughs> watching Netflix. <laughs> So while, you know, maybe nighttime snacking is not dangerous and violent, it's hard to break. It's hard to break. And so reminding that, like, even though the behaviors, the dynamics, the relationship is completely different, some of the same kind of brain mechanisms can fire. So that's, I think, an important thing just to help someone gain a little compassion. So when, when I got out and then I, I told what had been going on. Um, only one person was like, don't you ever go back? You know, like everybody else was more like supportive. And I felt, I felt really good because number one, everybody believed me and there was no second guessing. Like, very important. Like, did that really happen there? And there was no innuendo of it. It was just like, if you said it happened, it freaking happened. Kendall Ann. Mm-hmm. And then they were protective of me um, and made me feel like he couldn't hurt me now that they were on my team, right? Like now this was not just me against this man who's bigger than me, who's meaner than me, who is doing the, the craziest shit to me, but telling me that he loves me. Now I have this influx of people again in my life who say they love me and do exactly what you do when you love somebody. And so I think once someone gets out, let them say what they want to say. And then maybe, you know, like, just tell them like, you're not alone now. Now you're not alone. Now I'm here. Now I'm going to protect you. Now this is a thing that we can all work on together. Yeah. And something about what you're saying, I think that's important for people who are trying to not get into an abusive relationship as, as as much as we can all try, you know, to stay safe if possible is um, the very beginning of the love bombing phase. When all you want to do is spend time with your, that new partner, let that fizzle out and let people back in, mm-hmm. make sure that you're not isolating the, the relationship from the outside world and from your other relationships all the research out there that has looked at this shows that the healthiest, most long-standing, successful unions and marriages are ones that have a social circle to support it. So you're not going to be a stronger couple if it's just the two of you against the world. You will be a stronger couple if there are other people standing in your corner. And if your partner is not encouraging that, that's a red flag that you need to look out for immediately. Yeah. I think that's so easy. I, I, 
to do, you know, dropping friends and dropping, you know, mm-hmm. people out of your lives when you get into a new relationship, because you're in that infatuation period where you want to spend time together. And I remember so many friends where I'm like, Hey, you just get into a relationship and you just drop all your friends. And I think maybe that's even a good pattern to identify, yes. you know, is okay. I'm getting into a relationship this time. I'm going to keep my friend circle. I'm going to hang out with yeah. him. But I'm also every like once a week, I'm still going to do a girl's night or just kind of keep that same, keeping your social circle as your circle still. It's a fantastic boundary to set too. Um, You know, when I talk about with clients about how do you make sure that they're going to be respectful of your boundaries, I, I always tell the story of telling my husband when we were first dating, hey, I like to hang out with my girls you're really not going to be able to hold me back from doing that. If that bothers you, I'm probably not the person for you. And so he was completely okay with it. I mean, to this day, it's not like I hang out with my girlfriends every week now, but if I wanted to, I could. And that's the thing is having that openness that your partner encourages you to have your individual relationships outside of them is very important. Absolutely. I think that's like something that you learn as you go through life, like, oh, that was really important. <laughs> I could, I see, I see even myself, that was a pattern, you know, when I was a, you know, teen, teenager, early twenties, where it was, it was all about that person. And then you start losing your identity in that person as well. Yeah. So what happens when you guys aren't together anymore is right. I would think that it, there's a moment of, oh, who am I now? Like, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. what are some do's and don'ts for friends and family of um, victims and survivors. Um, One thing that would be, it's so minor, but it, it, it was so helpful for me that my family started always pointing out when I was right about something, (laughs) because in my relationship, I had been like gutted to think I, everything that I thought was wrong, everything I said was wrong, every instinct that I had was wrong. And so my friends and family would be like, so like oh you're right about that like and like some of them were a little over the top (laughs) but it did help me like get back on the path of like oh wait a minute like Mm -hmm. I I I can think for myself I I am a smart person I don't need this person telling me how to think about everything so just Mm -hmm. just little things like that just saying like oh yeah that's a good point yeah you are right things like that just they they really help you uh, rebuild your self-esteem. You have such a good support system. That's so sweet. And you said that I was like, oh my God, that's so nice that they just like have that thought to. Mm-hmm. And, and, and one thing that was wonderful is my best friend, Gretchen, w- when I was in this space that I couldn't make any decisions, I just couldn't make any, any decisions. Like in the book, I talk about how I had a panic attack about picking out soda right so I was just so like oh I can't make a I can't make like an affirmative decision so my best friend who's wonderful she said just say what you don't want mm-hmm. like just go there in your mind like and then you it, it will help rebuild you so then I told you know the rest of my family like look I'm gonna really struggle with decisions for a while so don't make me make any like affirmative decisions. Just let me tell you what I don't want to do. 
And that was so easy when, when they were telling, they were saying like, okay, here are three things we can go to whatever, Chili's, <laughs> Outback Steakhouse <laughs> or the Olive Garden. And I'd be able to say like, well, I don't want Italian. So then they would choose one of the other two. And just that lift, it, it made it feel like, okay, all right, I'm getting back to making my own decisions. Yeah. If, if I was going to share one do and don't, and I love the, I love both of those and I'm stealing both of those for therapy. Thank <laughs> yes. you, Gretchen. Thank and I'm you. impressed. I'm so impressed with how, I mean, I feel like you were like on this journey to like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get better. I'm going to heal. And to like apply that skill, skill, apply that skill <laughs> just right off the bat. That that's really impressive. Well, so, it wasn't off the bat. There was, there was a, a, a rough time yeah. before I was ready yeah. to, to, to start that. But. You were determined to heal, you know? You know what though? That's interesting. You bring that up because that would be one of my don'ts for friends and family. Don't rush the survivor. Mm-hmm. Like don't expect them to have a timeline for healing and don't lose hope that just because they haven't met that timeline, you expect that they don't still have a journey of healing ahead of them. So I think that's this, this idea of trauma that it's going to be just like, you know, healing a, a, a bruise or a cut. That's not how it is. It's, it can take years for someone to be manipulated to the point where they are sucked back into abuse. And it can take just as long, if not a lifetime to, to, not that it takes a lifetime to heal, but it, it, there can be new things. Every time a new thing comes up in life, it's this new experience to continue healing and, and reflect on how that past experience relates to that. Mm-hmm. So that would be my big don't. Don't rush a survivor, but be there with them. Um, one that I would say a do would be in the relationship. Do compassionately, gently, and non-judgmentally express your concerns. If you notice something, don't be afraid to speak up, but remember, as we keep talking about the way that you talk to someone, if you, if you feel, if you feel frustrated and you come to them frustrated, they're going to feel that. So trying to check yourself and make sure you're in a mindful place when you come to them, I think it is imperative to have that open dialogue. Yeah. And I think it's so good when, when Dr. Kelly talks about not rushing people that um, also have an understanding that, you know, this, these things change your brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, trauma changes your brain. And mm-hmm. for me, it's been many, many years and I, I still have PTSD. And what people do around me that really helps me is I, I get a from loud, unexpected noises. And it is like, I mean, I immediately start to sweat. I can hear my heart in my ears. I'm like, I I struggle to breathe. And now even all these years later, all I need to do is go like this to the people that love me. One minute. And they just stand where they are. Um, My dad always puts his hand on my shoulder. Mm -hmm. But they just stand with me for a second while I'm doing all of the techniques that I have learned to to cope with having PTSD. But nobody that I know is like, 
you know, like, oh, this is so annoying. I have to stand here for a minute. It's just like they they understand that that sometimes you're gonna you're gonna need, like Dr. Kelly says, some compassion, mm-hmm. um, and just understanding that some healing takes time, and and some like I, I'm not sure there'll ever be a time when I hear a loud unexpected noise that I don't feel my spine, mm-hmm. um, and so not being judged for that, and people allowing me the space to have those reactions, and just sitting with me in the reaction is so helpful for me. What are some steps um, victims can take to getting out? They've identified that this isn't healthy, that they probably should leave. What, what advice would you give? Like telling people or read that, read that chapter in the book and then do the opposite of what I did. (laughs) (laughs) Don't don't go back alone when the violent person is around. Yeah. I'll let Dr. Kelly take this one because she, she tells me how to do the right way. If nothing else, it was very validating that you made the right decision to leave. Exactly. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And that, that isolation piece is important. So if you feel that you are in danger, you should not be doing it alone. So you're not always going to have, cause Kenna Land was saying like no one in your social circle and your support circle knew. So even if it's a professional, a, um, someone at, at a hotline, someone at a local agency, um, a coworker, just anyone, if you can just, if you are listening to this and you feel like there's just that one person, you're like, yeah, maybe I could tell them, maybe I could ask them, do it, get that support person. You can also, I mean, you can go so far as to call the police and ask for them to help escort you when you go to get your belongings. That is an option that a lot of survivors don't know because of the fact that they're gaslit into thinking that that is not an option. And it is an option. We have an incredibly comprehensive safety plan that we offer in the book that goes through every nut and bolt of what to do to get out. However, I will say this. Because it's not always a flip decision, it's not always an overnight decision, starting to come up with those kind of, with with a lot of survivors I work with who are in the contemplative stages, I do work on improving their resilience and their their kind of reconnection with themselves if they're not necessarily ready to leave because of the fact that if they're feeling stronger within themselves, they're going to make that step. Um, And the good thing is that a lot of times that includes bringing other people in, even if it's brand new people. Mm -hmm. Um, There are, we mentioned the hotline.org. There are, in every area, there's going to be, I know here in Raleigh, Interact is in the Triangle and also Compass is up in like the Chapel Hill area. So doing a quick search incognito. So I'm telling, you know, listeners go incognito on your computers so that you're, abuser can't search for what you were looking for. Um, and it's funny, you could probably Google how to do that. (laughs) Um, you know, because some can be really, really pervasive at wanting to know every single thing you're doing. Yes. And in fact, like somebody that I know, I mean, her boyfriend would stand right there anytime she'd make a phone call, always standing by her. He would take her phone, go through her text messages. So Mm -hmm. it can be difficult to hide your game plan. Right. 
That being said, having a plan, I love to use the word plan because when we feel like we have a plan, even if we're not ready to implement it, that moment, it does create a sense of control over a very uncontrollable situation. So I would encourage definitely reach out to your local agencies, try to get someone early on to help you get out because the more that's invested, the harder it's going to be to leave. So what are some stages of, of grief or stages of just um, what you're mentally going through after getting out of a relationship like that? It's different for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it, it felt too much for me to, um, and my, my struggle personally was that I, I still loved the person from the beginning of the relationship. And then I had been in this, I'd been violently attacked by him, right? So those two things kept swirling around me and I I had to not feel. And so I was like abusing sleep aids and I was just sleeping as much as possible just so I didn't have to think or feel. Um, And then just gradually... You, you start to understand the, the biggest jump for me was when I had a therapist. I was, I was so upset. I was, I was crying so hard in her office and she grabbed my hand and she said, Kendall Ann, no matter what you would have done, you couldn't have fixed this and nothing that happened is your fault. And so that started me on the path of like, oh, wait, you know, like, like, all right, I can, I can do this. That's the same therapist that I, I talk about, you know, my dog, my dog, Ozzy saved me and he became my security blanket and I could not go anywhere without Ozzy. And so I found a therapist where Ozzy could come with me. Mm-hmm. So I think that one of the big things is allowing yourself to, to feel all of your big emotions right there you're, you're going to feel a lot and a lot of it is going to be um negative and and hard to feel it's, it's hard to be ashamed of something that's happened to you and you feel guilty and you feel like it's your fault and if, if I would only if I could adjust we'll just sh- 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 and you have to just just stop with those thoughts and just you know change them a little Another big thing for me was um, through meditation, which was <laughs> Dr. Kelly is like to tell the story about how, what I thought meditation was and what it actually is. Um, learning- I think that came up in your podcast, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so look, the idea of um, impermanence really, really helped me. Um, just meditating on like that nothing is really permanent. Okay, you feel like total shit this day that's fine. You might feel different the next minute. You could feel shitty for a week. And all of that is, is allowed. Mm-hmm. Also, if you just look around, you'll be shocked about the people who want to help you and mm-hmm. accepting their help is, is very difficult. Um, because one of the ways that you're groomed is that, that you will pay a price for that help that you, that you are accepting. So Mm -hmm. just knowing that you have people and, and strangers that, that just want to help you out and be nice. 
you know, when Dr. Kelly talks about having a plan to get out, I didn't have a plan to get out. And then I did not have a plan to get my stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's, that. It, it seems so trivial. How are you going to get your stuff? You know, like, oh, it's not a big deal, but I didn't know any of those resources available. Mm-hmm. And so my cousin and I went to where I lived with him. We, we said we were coming and I hired a moving truck. My cousin and I had big, huge trash bags and we put my, we took things out of like my dressers and threw them in the trash bags. And then the moving people, they would move the furniture as we did it. But before we went in, I, I said to them, I said, listen, um, we're going in here and that this is not a safe place for me. And that was all I needed to say to those moving guys. They were like, nobody's going to hurt you when we're here. Oh, geez. Mm-hmm. Hired. And- you hired bodyguards, not movers. Hope they got tips. <laughs> but Taking notes for our second edition because I can't believe that story didn't come up. <laughs> but, but but that's the kind of stuff that like it, it's going to happen. And and I was a person who it, it's in the book. I I gave myself a timeline. I had bruises on my body, and I kept saying, "When these bruises are gone, you're going to be right back, Kendallan. It's going to be perfect, no problem. This did, this is going to slow you down." You're going to be fine. You're not going to let that man ruin your life. That's what I kept saying. He's not going to ruin my life. He's not going to ruin my life. And I had to accept that I had been through the very complex trauma, mm-hmm. violence. Um, and that, that's, that's what, what really was helpful for me was just looking at these little, mm-hmm. I don't know, like these challenges that, that then you're okay. Like that was a challenge I overcame. Yeah. Awesome. Now, now I got a bigger one to do. Okay. Yeah. On the next. Yeah. A couple things. And also it's, I love listening to like how your experience was going from like the beginning of leaving and just being able to accept that love and that positive energy from everyone. I do notice that with clients I work with when they leave reorganizing their social support is a huge theme. I see a lot of people who leave relationships at times are going to also end up breaking up with a lot of other people, maybe other people that were within that life that you had with that abuser, maybe their family, maybe their friends, maybe you had shared friends and maybe those were friends that they were holding over your head as well. If you leave me, you'll have no one. So I really try to encourage people that if, if the person is siding with the abuser, if the person is not understanding what you went through, then that's part of leaving the relationship that unfortunately can kind of continues for a period of time. Um, some people have to do, which we talk about the no contact rule where you just cut everything. So that means social media, all and all the things you can follow and you know not really follow one or the other I don't know there's too many TikTok this that whatever Mm -hmm. but um having no contact because as I mentioned earlier you know the the brain can become addicted to the cycle of abuse and really the only way is abstinence and so this for listeners who have children I understand this is a completely different scenario and there is has to be people that can help step in when there are kids involved. Um, 
but no contact is a big part, reorganizing those relationships. And then, you know, trying to figure out what am I interested in? What is the thing that I want to do next? Um, there's a, there's a client that has my heart that I've been working with this whole time since we've been writing this book. And I actually told her, if you're listening, I'm not going to say your name, but I told her during one of our sessions the other day, I said, I wrote this book with you in mind. Like I've been working with her, trying to help her leave her abuser for a very long time. And she's out, it's over, but it's also not at the same time because emotionally she's still ending the relationship. But last session, she came in with all these really awesome jobs that she's applying to and these things that she's doing. And at the end of the session, I looked at her, I was like, do you realize you did not bring him up once? This oh, wow. I was like, this is the first time in like years that you have not brought him up in the session. That gave yeah. me chills. I know, I know. I have yes. goosebumps. Um, but that like that moment was so huge. And that is another thing that people can look forward to that will happen at some point. Is that refocus on the self? Right. She's mm-hmm. not defined by her abuser. Mm-hmm. Like that, mm-hmm. she is her own woman with her yeah. own life and her own future. And now she gets to yeah. She gets to pave her own path. She is so talented and awesome. I wish I could break HIPAA and tell you the job she's applying for. (laughs) It's so so cool, but I can't. So how do you end up trusting people again, eventually getting into a healthy relationship? Mm -hmm. I mean, I would think that there, that would be scary to, to give someone trust again. I, um, I tend to tell my friends way more now than I ever did. Mm-hmm. And I'm always, I'm just double checking. Like, does this, does this feel all right? Does this feel too fast? Does this feel I've gotten right? a couple texts from you. Like, was this guy <laughs> gaslighting? <Yeah. laughs> what's this? What's this? What's this? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and another thing that I, for me, that really helps is I like to see the way that my friends and family interact with someone that I'm dating because that I feel like that that helps me as well um something that that I I really do struggle with is trying to figure out if someone is just being nice or if I'm like what I say like being set up like Mm -hmm. okay what is are you just being nice to me now because later on shit is going to get crazy Mm -hmm. or or do you say these things to me because it's it's really what you believe? And so I think that that's something that I'm always going to struggle with. And mm-hmm. that is just, you know, part of part of the process. Yeah. And earlier, Kendall Ann, you were mentioning um, saying what you don't want to do, like which restaurant you don't want to go to or what you don't want to, you know, eat or drink or whatever. I would say that is a key component into trusting those new relationships is say your don'ts. Like put them out there into the world, tell the people that you're potentially going to date or interested in, or even be friend with, because it can be even hard to trust friends sometimes after going through something like this. Um, Say, I don't like A, B, or C, see how they respond. If the person is open to your individual opinions and you having your own persona, then hopefully it can create more sense of safety. But 
just like it, it's that, that, you know, patience and it taking time. Um, the thing about, if you guys know anything about attachment theory, but the thing about secure attachment is that people who are securely attached often say what they don't like. They often say what their boundaries are and they often say what they need. And so that is going to make it more likely that you're going to start to feel secure much sooner than if you keep everything to yourself. Kendall Ann, what do you hope that people will take away from your story? Um, I hope that they see, if, if they are a survivor, that they see at least something in my story that they can relate to, that maybe the exact thing didn't happen to them, but, but something similar happened. Um, and so they don't feel as alone because it wasn't until I started telling people what happened to me that they told me what happened to them. And then I was like, oh my God, this whole time there was this community of us and we just didn't know that the other person had experienced this. So we weren't dialoguing about it. Mm-hmm. So just that people could read it and think, uh, okay, that, you know, I, I'm not the only person in the world that has felt this way, who has thought these thoughts, you know, that there, there are other people out there. Um, and another thing that, you know, if, if you have not experienced it, I hope that when you read it, you, you understand more, you know, why people don't just leave. Um, and that, that you, you get to see the cycle of what it, what it truly does look like and, and how an abuser traps someone in a relationship. Um, and then also, you know, maybe just to see, like, you, you can freaking do it. You, you can freaking do it. If I can do it, if I can get out and I can be, you know, have a good job and, and have friends and family and, you know, still have a smile on my face. If I can do it, you can absolutely do it. Cause there is nothing special about me that made my story any different than the way your story is going to be. Yeah. And then Dr. Kelly, what, um, I guess words of encouragement could you give to somebody who's in an abusive relationship or coming out of one? You have self-worth. And if anyone is making you feel that you are unworthy, they are the one that is unworthy. I think the, the notion of being a burden to life, to space, to relationships, to others is an all too common cognitive distortion that I encounter with people who are contemplating leaving and they just haven't made that step. Mm-hmm. And if I could embolden every single person I ever had the pleasure and like honor to work with that no one gets to hurt you and no one gets to take your self-worth away, no matter what your history is either. Even if you have witnessed some of the worst relationships, even if you've never had a good example of what love looks like, that doesn't make you unlovable. That doesn't make you unable to have a positive relationship. It just means that you have a catalog of knowledge that other people don't, that you can refer back to, to figure out what you don't want. So it's kind of like a chicken or the egg situation. Like, do you get the self-worth, then do you get out? Or do you get out, then you get the Mm self-worth? You know, sometimes we have to kind of figure out 
what it is that we want our end game to be and what we'd like want to work towards and, you know, walk those steps that almost mimic what we want, even if it doesn't feel true in that moment, but it will eventually. I mean, it takes so long to hardwire a negative thinking pattern. We're not born that way. We all think we're fabulous when we're babies and little ones, you know? And somewhere along the line, the groove got re reworked somewhere else that created this negative narration. It's going to take time to rework that groove. So I am worthy. That is the, the mantra over and over and over and over. Even if you don't believe it, write it on sticky notes, draw it on your, I don't care what, whatever you got to do, tattoo it on your arm. And if, if that feels too inauthentic, find your own mantra, but something that can ground you and something that can pull you away from what they are saying. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just, you're worthy. That's, that's the biggest thing. Damn straight. Damn mm-hmm. straight guys. So the book, what I wish I knew, seriously, I haven't, I, I don't think I've ever seen this kind of writing style before. I think it's so unique. Um, and I can't wait to give this to the person I'm thinking of. <laughs> so go ahead and plug everything, um, your social media, where you can get the book. I'll also put all the links in the show notes as well. So awesome. You want to go first? Yeah. So for the book, you can find us on, you know, all the socials. Um, we have a, a readers group, which Dr. Kelly will talk about because that's really her, her, her brainchild. She thought of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we'd love to hear from you. We, we'd love to hear about, you know, your stories, um, the things that you related to in the book, the things that you learned from the book. Um, for me, when I'm, when I'm not doing stuff for the book um, and when I'm not doing my full-time job, I, I have a podcast called High Heels and Heartache that, you know, I started for survivors and um, where I interview mental health experts. And again, High Heels and Heartache, it's on all the socials. Um, so you can check me out there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So I think on, is it what I wish I knew the book? Is that what we called it on Facebook and Instagram, I believe, and Twitter? Yeah. yeah, yeah. What I wish I knew the book. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Twitter's a um, weird one because it's like what I wish I knew for. Because I couldn't right. get any of the other ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. So on Instagram and Facebook, we got what I wish I knew the book and we do have a readers group where we encourage people to put any questions or kind of give each other feedback, safe space to have a dialogue. Um, Is the readers group just on Facebook? mm -hmm, Yep. It's on Facebook. Although we have discussed, you know, if, if anyone, you know, this virtual world is so cool because we could be anywhere. If anyone, whether it be like a, um, you know, a women's shelter or some nonprofits or anywhere that kind of services or supports these communities. Um, we're happy to be part of a book club or a reader group. If you want, you know, one of us to kind of come in and give some feedback or some support, um, just reach out to us. Um, so as far as me personally, you can also find me at Dr. Amelia Kelly on Instagram and, uh, Facebook. And also on Insight Timer, I offer uh, live lessons. You girls are awesome. Thanks so much mm-hmm. for talking to me. Uh, yeah, this is fun. The book's amazing. You both are amazing and you're helping so many people. You really are. I got so many messages and, and honestly, all the questions we covered in you know our conversation. So 
Um, I just know there's so many more people than we realize that are experiencing abuse or that know people who are experiencing it. So you, you both are doing great work. Thank you.